A federal appeals court yesterday backed Minnesota's rules governing the civil commitment of convicted sex offenders who have served their criminal sentences. The program is designed to keep sexual predators off the street, provide treatment, and give them a path to release once they are no longer a danger. But in more than 20 years, only one person has been fully released, and that didn't occur until August of this year. A federal trial judge said the program violates the Constitution, and he ordered changes to make it easier to win release. But yesterday, the 8th U.S. Circuit threw out that order, saying the rules are, quote, rationally related to the state's legitimate interest of protecting its citizens from sexually dangerous persons, unquote. The 3 nothing ruling set a high bar for challengers to sexual predator commitment laws, saying state officials are entitled to broad deference. With us to talk about the ruling are two people who challenged the program. Dan Gustafson, he's the lead attorney for the people who are being detained under the law, and Eric Janis, a professor at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. He filed a brief opposing the program on behalf of the ACLU of Minnesota. Welcome to you both. Uh, Eric, let, let me start with you. Uh, can you just put the Minnesota law in some context for us? How does what the state does after uh, a, a sentence has, has run its course, uh, how does that compare to what happens elsewhere around the country? Sure, yeah. Um, so these are known as sexually violent predator laws. A uh, number of them were passed uh, beginning in the 1990s. They're quite uh, distinct in that they allow people to be locked up for indefinite periods of time after they've served their criminal sentence. Uh, currently, there are about 20 states uh, and the federal government that have laws like this. The Minnesota program um, is similar on the books to these uh, other laws, but in operation, it's always it's been quite an outlier. It's got the highest per capita uh, number. Minnesota has the highest per capita number of uh, people civilly committed. As you mentioned, uh, almost no one has gotten out. So um, in, in a number of ways, uh, Minnesota is, uh, is an outlier. Dan, explain the Eighth Circuit's decision finding that the program is constitutional. Well, thank you for having me on the program, first of all. Uh, uh, there's really uh, two, two parts to the Eighth Circuit's decision. Um, that that uh, form the basis of it. First of all, they they set a very low standard for the state in terms of enacting this statute. Uh, normally, statutes that involve uh, the, the deprivation of individual liberty would be subject to a strict scrutiny standard, which the district court did. But the Eighth Circuit said no. The state only has to show a rational basis for enacting these laws. And so that's the lowest standard of protection with respect to the due process clause, much the same that they apply to things like laws that regulate zoning and laws that regulate taxation, things like that. So they set a very low bar for the state. And then on the other side of the equation, they set a very high standard for people who challenge the due process protection, saying that you have to show that the uh, statute is operated in a way it, that demonstrates malice or uh, sadistic intent on behalf of the state and that it's so egregious and so outrageous that it shocks the conscience. And that's a standard that, you know, is almost never, you can almost never meet that standard. And so 
they set a very low bar for the state, very high bar for the people who are committed. And, and it's always been our view, and the district court's decision was that it should be the other way around. When you take people's liberty away uh, involuntarily, that you should set a very high bar for the state because the state is acting under its governmental authority, and that you should set a very low bar for the people who challenge it. And so that's the basis for the Eighth Circuit's decision yesterday. Eric, does this decision effectively end the challenge to the program? The court did remand it back to the district court for consideration of other claims, but is there any any hope there for winning at least something out of this case? Well, I, I, I'm you know leave it to Dan to talk about what the, what the remaining claims might be, but I but what I can say is that the uh, the Eighth Circuit I think sent a clarion signal that um, it is going to take a hands off approach to these kinds of programs, despite the fact, as Dan mentioned, that they are depriving in Minnesota more than 700 people of their liberty, and for all intents and purposes, it's a lifetime commitment. So um, if, if you read this case, it, uh, it, it is a very clear signal for federal courts to, to keep their hands off uh, uh, and not provide any accountability. Um, I don't know what the plaintiff's plans are about seeking review or an en banc, en banc review, but uh, I assume that there might be some thoughts about that. So, so, Dan, that is the next question then. Are you going to seek, <clears throat> seek an en banc review or perhaps a Supreme Court? review? Well, you know, it's certainly two of the options that we're considering. You know, my inclination at this point is is to go directly to the Supreme Court. The Eighth Circuit is, you know, usually is not inclined to take an embank review of a case in which there's, you know, a 3-0 panel decision. Um, So so I think we're going to pursue an appeal in that regard. There's also, you know, at the district court, there remains claims under the Minnesota Constitution, which is, uh, you, you know, generally interprets its due process clause uh, uh, similarly to that of the federal courts. But here we have a situation where we may be able to get some uh, some additional relief uh, under the Minnesota Constitution where the federal courts have taken, as Professor Janice said, taken this hands-off approach to this. Eric, uh, the Eighth Circuit uh, essentially said in part of its ruling that that your side is trying to create new rights, or at least that's my read of it. And you know, among other things, they, they said mm-hmm. the Supreme Court has never declared that persons who pose mm-hmm. a significant danger to themselves or others mm-hmm. possess a fundamental liberty interest in freedom from physical restraint. What, what's the answer to that position? You know, there's, you know, to Quite honestly, I think the court's analysis is very confused. Um, You know, the Supreme Court has for decades now, the U.S. Supreme Court for decades, has examined civil commitment laws. Um, And they've examined them from a substantive due process perspective. Um, And, you know, the court has really talked about it in terms – the U.S. court has really talked about it in terms of exactly what standard of review it's applying whether it's strict scrutiny or rational basis. I mean, so the Eighth Circuit is correct in a sense in that way. But the court has um, made some very clear pronouncements about what kinds of civil commitment laws are acceptable and what kinds aren't. 
Um, and so states don't have unlimited discretion or even reasonable discretion in designing civil commitment laws. Um, they need to follow certain guidelines. And I think the key, uh, um, you know, some of the key guidelines are that if people are civilly committed, if it's a legitimate civil commitment program, they need to be released as soon as their risk level diminishes. And Eric, the, the, Eric, I'm going to ask yeah. you to hold that thought. We can we can pick it up in a moment. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. We're talking with law professor Eric Janis and lawyer Dan Gustafson about yesterday's appeals court ruling uh, upholding or, or effectively upholding uh, Minnesota's system for civil commitment of convicted sexual predators. Um, Dan, I think some people's instinctive reaction to this issue would be these are uh, you know people who have been convicted of rape, child molestation, some really awful crimes, and we should err on the side of keeping them uh, away from you know our children, our our sisters, uh, and that that uh, it's okay if if uh, uh, we do err on the side of keeping them uh, con- confined. What do you say to that? Well, I think that's a that's a common response to people with respect to these kinds of lawsuits and. And of course, you know nobody nobody defends the conduct that underlies their convictions from these plaintiffs. The issue really is is whether the state can involuntarily commit people uh, to prevent what they might do in the future. And and because that's a, because that is so difficult to predict, and, and and it sort of calls up the current problem that we hear in the news today about terrorist activity. You know, this program is much like a program that might be designed to uh, incarcerate or or commit terrorists who may commit future acts. You know, it it may be a legitimate exercise of state power to commit these people, but because it's such a difficult thing to predict, we want to be very careful that we don't... that we don't hold them one day longer than necessary to protect the public. So it's really a question about, it's not so much a question about whether the state has the authority to do this or whether this is good public policy. It's a question of whether we should have a real careful checks and balances on the state's power to avoid them using this for political purposes or for purposes that are outside the bounds of what the law would require. Would 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 uh, allow, Eric? Will you explain the procedure? In other words, once they are convicted, are they then given a hearing, a civil commitment hearing, and then periodic hearings? Well, yes and no. Uh, in at least in Minnesota, um, a person is convicted serves their sentence, and then as they're approaching the end of the prison sentence, there's a review process, and if the state determines, in their opinion, that the person poses a risk, then they're referred to a civil commitment process where there's a separate petition and a hearing with lawyers and so forth. So there there certainly is due process on uh, on that end. There's procedural due process. Um, as far as getting out, uh, in Minnesota, it's much uh, dicier. And that was one of the concerns that the district court judge had, and and that is that the state was not engaged in any kind of regular process of risk assessment or in providing regular hearings to these people to make sure that it was only holding people whose risk justified it. And interestingly, the Court of Appeals didn't take issue with that finding, basically, though, they said that they didn't really care whether people were being held beyond the time when they should be held. Dan, what have you heard from your clients after this ruling? What's their reaction? 
Well, of course, they're they're very disappointed, but I think the more important reaction from them is a, a, a real sense of hopelessness. You know, one of the one of the pervasive uh, aspects of testimony from uh, my clients at the trial was was that there's this because this commitment is indefinite. There's a sense that well, why bother going through the treatment or why bother doing anything because nobody ever gets out. And Judge Frank's order uh, of, the, of 2015, finding the program unconstitutional, changed all that. And it, it gave a sense of hope to people, and it, it gave a sense of uh, reason for people to engage in the treatment that would help uh, alleviate their mental uh, illness with this respect. And now this order has sort of crushed that. So there's a real sense of uh, why bother, why do anything, and, uh, and uh, why not why not just re- withdraw and refuse to participate in, in all the activities? So that's been the reaction. I want to thank our guests, Eric Janis, a law professor at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, and Dan Gustafson, the lead attorney representing the people who are being uh, confined under the Minnesota law that was the subject of the Eighth Circuit ruling. June, I have a feeling uh, that we are going to see this at the Supreme Court. We obviously uh, still have a shorthanded uh, a court here. Um, I, I'll, I'll be interested to see whether the court is, is willing to, to take this issue up. It would be uh, certainly seem like something that deserves to be heard by the Supreme Court. We will keep an eye on that.